Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. We'll start with my favorite part. Good evening and welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Diaz, the editorial page editor for the San Francisco Chronicle, and I'm going to be moderating tonight's uh, discussion. Joining me on stage is John Mendez, a retired CIA officer with 25 years of service. John is the former chief of disguise at the CIA. We'll get into that a little later, what okay. that is. Uh, and she's also a uh, author of three books, a fine arts photographer, a lecturer, and a consultant in many ways on intelligence matters. She is also the co-author of the new book, The Moscow Rules, The Secret CIA Tactics That Helped America Win the Cold War. Her book charts the most exciting parts of being a CIA agent during the Cold War, from Hollywood-inspired identity swaps to an armory of James Bond-style gadgets Jana narrates in this book her role in developing instrumental tactics that allowed CIA officers to outmaneuver the KGB. It was co-written with her late husband, Tony, also a former longtime CIA agent. This book is a fascinating and remarkable tribute to those who risked their lives to serve their country and the ingenuity that allowed them to succeed. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a Commonwealth Club welcome to Jana Mendez. John, it's great to be here with you tonight. Uh, I have to ask, you know, you and your uh, late husband, Tony, employed your spycraft really in the depths of the Cold War when uh, in the Soviet Union, when it was almost impenetrable for an American to be there, let alone be a spy there. You know, the Soviets certainly would be tracking anybody uh, who was an American, uh, regardless of why they were there. How did you get started? Well, you start where you enter the scene, and you see what you can do while you're, you know, while you're present on that stage. You're, you're right. By the way, your introduction, I really wish someone would write it down because I like the way you said that, all of it, very, very, very much. <laughs> I will email it to you. You know, the, um, the book starts, the real meat of the book starts in 1963 with a case that we, uh, that we had. A man stepped forward, a Russian, and said, I want to help the United States. I want to help the West. And we were actually, we, we didn't have any equipment or any tradecraft to deal with him. We, we had no tools to offer him. We had no, no ideas about how to keep him safe if he was going to work with us. So we did the obvious. We went to our British cousins who had been spying forever and we partnered with them. We ran that case jointly. Uh, the man's name was Pinkowski and he, he worked for us for 18 months and, um, and was arrested and was executed. And that's, that's the career trajectory in Moscow, if you're working with the West. Uh, it's, it's like it's written in stone. The book talks about using that as a beginning, uh, what we did about it. And the office that we were in was the, the queue of CIA. We were like the Mission Impossible guys. Uh, it was our, our audio people were the third story men who could go up and use Sherpa ropes in, in, in an urban environment like San Francisco. They could plant a bug anywhere. They could, uh, we could disguise anyone. We could give you a new identity if you needed it. We had physicists and chemists and engineers working with us supporting operations. The book is, the arc of the, the story in the book is how we went from this, uh, very low capacity and, and, and ability to help these people work with us to the other extreme where we were able to provide them with just incredibly sophisticated equipment and techniques. But there's another trajectory in the story, and that is that these Soviet Russian agents that worked for us would work for us for a period of time and would be betrayed by someone and would be arrested and would be executed. So there are kind of these two stories going on at the same time. I can imagine one of the hard part of being a, a spy in a hostile place like the Soviet Union is how do you figure out who is potentially an asset for the United States 
and who the Russians may be sending. I think the term of art is dangles. People who are, uh, they, they send out so that they can figure out whether you're a spy, kind of like this spy versus spy for those who read Mad Magazine in their youth. Tony Mendez read Mad, Mad Magazine. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> <laughs> he loved it. Um, that was always an issue. Um, dangles were also known as double agents, and the Russians liked to send them to us. They would pretend that they wanted to work with us, but they didn't. They just wanted to see what we needed to know because that would be of great interest to them. We had a man working at CIA named James Jesus Angleton, famous, famous character. Uh, almost, He was almost a caricature of himself. He looked kind of like a grasshopper. He was skinny, pale, tall, thin man with glasses this big. Before that was cool. Uh, he raised orchids. He had all these funny hobbies. He was a fly fisherman. And he was our chief of counterintelligence for 20-some years. His job was to find the dangles. So he ended up believing that everyone was a dangle and basically shut down our Soviet East European operations for a period of time. Everyone was suspect. He had a theory um, that was, he was paranoid, it appears. It was actually a big, big problem. It took um, Richard Helms and Bill Colby were the two DCIs that finally got him out of there, but he almost shut down operations. That idea that you, you always have to vet people, you have to test them, you have to check their bona fides, you have to make sure that they are who they say they are, and then you have to see that they give you actionable intelligence. Because a dangle will give you all kinds of bits and pieces, but he won't give you actionable intelligence. They would not allow that. So there was a methodology to tracking them down, but Angleton just wanted to declare everyone, including Pinkowski, that first agent that I told you about. <laughs> he said, oh, he was, he was a double agent. You know, I, I would think that one of the challenges uh, is not only figuring out who might be an asset, but once somebody becomes an asset, I, I suspect a big part of your job is protecting them because, as you mentioned, uh, if they're discovered... That's it. In a best-case scenario, they're in the gulag. Uh, Worst-case scenario, probably more common scenario, they're executed. The worst-case scenario was a rumor that was always floating around that some of them that were caught and arrested, that they were not executed, but that they were tied onto stretchers and fed feet first into the fires of a crematorium. No one ever knew whether to believe that. We thought that was a KGB-generated myth to keep their people from working with West. But it was always out there. Now, you served as uh, the CIA's chief of disguise, your actual I did. Uh, job title, in the agency's Office of Technical Services. Now, chief of disguise, who knew there was such... Uh, I've never seen that on anyone's resume. Uh, and I want to ask you about some of the techniques that you used. I mean... Uh, and how they've advanced over the years. I mean, it goes way beyond fake beards, wigs, uh, masks, or fake fake ears. I mean, this is not something that you can go buy at the uh, Halloween superstore. No. Um, wh- where do you, where do you come up with this stuff, and and how is it advanced? You know, we call the the basic the basic elements that you're talking about: wigs and and facial hair, uh, glasses, uh, fake tattoos, all the little piercings, things that you can do to make a person transform a person. That's what we would call traditional disguise. But the interesting part, I thought, came along with um, advanced disguise. And that was a whole different category of work. That's where we did get some chemists involved. We got some people out in Hollywood involved. We got... um, We had worked very closely with a man named John Chambers. And in our first three books, we couldn't even say his name. Now they let us say his name. He's been dead for 20 years. But he never would have minded if we said his name. But the CIA did. John Chambers um, did the work on the Planet of the Apes movies, which was a breakthrough back then. He had those those masks, the ape-like masks, that were really fitted around the eyes, really fitted around the mouth. They did animate. Um, we were intrigued with that. Tony Mendez was very, very interested in that. He worked with John Chambers um, 
on a movie called The Island of Dr. Moreau, which was supposed to have been just a terrible movie. But the work that John Chambers did turning people into monsters was supposed to be incredible. You know, Chambers ended up getting an Academy Award for his makeup work. It was the first one. So Tony was out there. He wasn't working on the movie. He was working with John Chambers, learning how you make a mask that can fit like that and can animate like that. He brought that technology back to CIA. Uh, and we started working with um, our first mask technology. Not beautiful, gorgeous things that they turned into, but these were initially stunt double masks. That's what they started out as. You know, the ones that the they take the star off the horse and they put the stunt guy on the horse with the, with the mask on. There were three sizes, large, medium, and small. Large was Rex Harrison. I cannot remember medium and small, but everybody wants to know, so I'm going to go back through our papers <laughs> and find them. There were three, three known movie stars, and you could make their stunt double mask with aluminum molds, and we did that. So we'd end up with a latex uh, replica of Rex Harrison's face. And then we could turn him into anything. We could turn him into a, a South Indian. We could turn him into an African-American. Just by the way we finished it, the hair goods we applied, we could turn him into a woman. Not very pretty. <laughs> a female. <laughs> That's where our advanced uh, techniques began. Um, then we went back to L.A. because Tony had always been interested in, mu- in magic since he was a kid. He, he, there was a there was a popular magazine when he was a kid. The boy the boy mechanic, I think it was called. Lots of tricks, lots of uh, stuff, magic tricks, and and so Tony started pursuing that out in Hollywood, and it led to some really interesting things that we did. I understand that the um, Hollywood techniques uh, which worked there don't always necessarily work in the field for spies. Uh, True, for example. Uh, I was reading uh, where you were talking about uh, the mask that uh, that the Hollywood makes the mask out of latex, and if you're a spy in a in a humid climate, that doesn't work so well. Uh, how did how did you get around that? If you're wearing one of those and it's a really hot and humid day, it's like being underwater. You just there's nowhere for any perspiration to go. Your skin can't even breathe. They're fine in an air-conditioned car. They're fine in, in an indoor environment. So we um, that's how we use them. To do something that, that could be more easily, more comfortably worn, we had to go to completely different materials. We had chemists working in chemistry labs coming up with um, various concoctions, and we'd try it out and see if it was comfortable and see if it would wear well and see if it could collapse into nothing. So if you had to take it off and stick it in your armpit, it would it would do that. Um, we had a lot of things we needed for it to do, and we went through a lot of materials to find to find the ones that we that we finally used. How convincing are these? I mean, how close can you get to somebody who's wearing one of these masks and and not detect it? I wore one to the White House. I went to the uh, the White House with Judge Bill Webster, who was head of CIA at the time. We didn't mean to take it to the White House. We had no idea we would do that. But I, this was a new product, and I was chief of disguise, so I got the first one. It turned me into um, a much younger, rather pretty. <laughs> Can you tell that I liked it? <laughs> I was going to ask you if you're wearing one tonight. <laughs> it, w- it wouldn't look like this. I, uh, I told them when I retired, they said, you know, was there any any regret that I had? I said, I, I regret that that mask is in a box in the archives of the CIA because it only fits me. But anyway, <laughs> I took it to uh, Judge Webster, head of CIA, and he said, this is great. We're going to the White House. Now, the first one, I was an African-American man. And it did look great. But I couldn't, well, I couldn't go into the White House. I couldn't talk it. It didn't work. You know, on many levels, it didn't work. But it looked good. So he said, make another one. Then I became the pretty girl. So um, I went to Judge Webster's house in the morning in True Face. And his little dog was at the door. And the little dog was just barking at me and didn't like me at all. And I went in the powder room. And I, you know what they say about dogs with hats, that dogs don't like hats? I thought, oh, God, this dog is going to kill me when I walk out wearing a mask. The dog loved me. (laughs) The dog wouldn't leave me alone. 
So um, we went to the White House and we were outside the Oval Office and there was a meeting going on in the Oval Office and it was going long. Now, even if you're chief of disguise, there's a little paranoia when you wear the first new anything, when you're something you haven't tried out in public. So I'm a little nervous. and Everybody's laughing, telling jokes. And finally we went in and I was the first one to brief. It was President George H.W. Bush. And in that room was um, Brent Scowcroft, John Sununu. The judge was there. Bob Gates was there. He was national security advisor then. It was just a little ring of people around the, the, the desk. So I went first. I was going to leave first. I, I told the president I had brought him pictures when we made disguises for him when he was at CIA. So I showed him some 8x10s of him. I said, but we've gotten a lot better, and I'm here to show you the, the latest thing. And he said, well... Show me. He's looking like, what, you got a bag somewhere? Show me. And I said, okay. And I, I did that thing, that Tom Cruise thing. I just peeled it off. <laughs> he loved it. John Sununu, who's next to me, not paying any attention because he's making notes or changing notes because he's going to go next and he's got some things to say to the president, almost fell out of his chair. <laughs> he was kind of a big man anyway. And there's a White House photographer circling the room. Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. I th- she must be in there always, or he. So uh, we finished, and I left. I was holding up the mask at one time just to show the president. I was just kind of dangling it. And then, then when I was done, I left. And the photographer came out to the secretary's office where that dog Millie and the puppies, where they were, we were playing with them. And she said, what did you do? What was that? And I said, I can't tell you. (laughs) It's classified. (laughs) So 10 years later, they sent me the picture. 10 years. And they've airbrushed the mask out. So this hangs in our library. People say, what were you saying to him? What were you? You're in front of the president with your... (laughs) So the Secret Service did not ask at uh, at the gate why you're picture on your driver's license did not match your I didn't have a I I don't think I even had a purse with me I did not have a piece of paper that's that's the old days I think it's tightened up a little bit since then just a bit yeah do you see commercial possibilities for this I could see people wanting to buy these masks for their uh, class reunions to show up (laughs) I never thought of that that's a really good idea that'll be your next million you know we do have one of our former employees works with uh, people who are damaged. He worked with a lot of the 9-11 people, people that lost ears, people that lost noses. And he can, it's called anaplastology. He can, based on his work with us, he can rebuild ears. And he, he has dress ears with diamonds in them, studs. And then your everyday ears with hoops. It sounds funny, but it's changing people's lives. Understand that you had a little test at the CIA where you would uh, send an agent into the cafeteria Oh, yeah. Everybody knew him or her Yeah, uh, in disguise, and, and that would be a good way to test to see how detectable it was with a, a light thing. Tell us about that. That test was for him. Uh, we, would, we would have our officers, before they'd go overseas, they would come to us, and we'd figure out what they needed, and we'd order it, and we'd get it all ready. And we, Just like getting a suit made. We'd have a final fitting, make sure everything was right. And at the final fitting, we'd say, so you feel comfortable? Is this, this going to work for you? They'd say, yeah. Yeah, well, this is for the men. Because we knew that the men didn't want to wear a disguise to begin with. And we thought that they would probably put it in the top kit, stick it in their safe drawer, and never take it out. Unless we showed them that it worked. So we'd get them, they were all in it. And we'd say, okay, go to lunch, come back. Or go to 7-Eleven, buy me, buy me something. Go, we'd send them on a mission. And they go out in their disguise. Everyone's the same the first time. If you walk in a store, you're sure they're going to think you're shoplifting. I mean, people are just nervous. And they come back saying, you know what? I sat next to my boss, and he didn't know who I was or whatever. And uh, then we thought we had a good chance that they would use it if they needed it. So did the bad guys have this face technology as well? I mean, uh, could they possibly get into the White House? No. Nobody has that technology because nobody else needs it. It's really a big research and development program to, to build the capability to, to do those faces. We, it was the only way we could get to work in Moscow. I mean, it was the only way we could step away from surveillance is if we could 
convincingly look like someone else. The Russians that are in the United States, they don't, they don't need any of that. I mean, they don't have 24 hour a day, you know, seven day a week surveillance on them. They can do their work very easily in the open, I'm sorry to say. We should work on that. Interesting. Um, so what does it take, what are the characteristics that it takes? There might be folks in our audience tonight who are interested in being a clandestine CIA agent. What are some of the, the characteristics that, that, that make a successful spy? There might be one or two of them in this room that I've spoken to over, over the years. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> what we recruit for is, is a type. And I'm talking about the classic operations officer. But there are many, many jobs at CIA. There are analytical jobs. There are administrative jobs. There's a lot of people and a lot of work. But the operational jobs, the case officers that are going to go out into the world and find someone like you or you or you and convince you to betray your government and to work with the United States government, to work against your own government, that's a tall order. So we are looking for people with extremely good interpersonal skills. We're looking for people who are typically extroverted, who are self-starters, who are world travelers, who are curious and interested in what's going on in the world. It's, um, it's, a, it's a character type, these, these larger-than-life personalities. That's, we have to find them because we can't create them. We can teach them a lot of things. We can teach them area knowledge. We can teach them language, where they're going. We can teach them a lot of the skills that they will need. But we have to get that initial personality to begin with. We don't want people who are just out of school. We want people with with life experience. We love people who have traveled. We love people who have mastered languages, maybe more than one language. And the more exotic the language, the more interested we are in them. Um, yeah, we we have... I understand. I was in... It was in three weeks ago. We went in. Um, they presented my husband Tony with um, with a post-mortem, this incredible letter with medals and stuff on it. And I was talking to the woman who's running the Director of Science and Technology. That's the number four job at the agency. I said, you know, do you get a lot of applications? You get enough? She said, we get about 50000 a year. So they're okay on applications. But Tony and I, were, we were always looking for people. We were always trying to up the quality of the of the applications when we talked. So you would actually be recruiting not only assets, but spies for the Americans. We have been approached by a number of people when we talk to a group like this. Someone will come up afterwards and, and want to know, how do you submit a resume? You know, can I send you a resume? Will, will you, Tony Mendez or John, will you look at my resume and tell me if, if, if it makes sense, if, if they would be interested? And we're always glad to do that. We know that a couple of people have come in because, because of that. Here's an interesting question from uh, the audience, and that's about facial rec- recognition technology. Uh, has that in any way complicated these masks or ability to disguise oneself? I mean, can that technology pick up somebody who's not really who they present themselves as? That's a, that's a good question, whoever, whoever wrote it. Um, facial recognition came into CIA through a, one of our DCIs, uh, Bill Casey, and he had seen a James Bond movie, Goldfinger. And he called Tony Mendez and he said, can we do that? And Tony said, I don't think so. And Casey said, well, let's, let's get some people on it. So Tony sent it off to Department of Army Research, uh, the, the advanced group called DARPA, and kind of kissed it goodbye. About 10 years later... National Geographic did a double-page spread of my husband's little thumbnails, they call them. There were 64 pictures of my husband trying to defeat the state-of-the-art of facial recognition at the time uh, with nothing more than some cotton balls and uh, a cigar and um, a goofy mustache and a hat, glasses, just basic everyday stuff. 84% of the time he could beat it. Because back then we knew kind of the algorithms. We knew what they were working from, the set of the ears, the distance from the outer corner to the outer corner, all these configurations. That was then. I think now, I think it's gotten really good. 
China in particular has really advanced spatial recognition. I think it's gotten really good, and I think people are um, paying attention to that. Here's Nadine's question, uh, that it, there's a common perception that the CIA now relies more on technology and less on human assets. What's your perspective on that? Toward the end of the book that, that I'm here to talk to you about, I quote Gina Haspel, our, our current female director of CIA. That's two fairly senior CIA women I'm pointing out, although I'm not a feminist. Gina Haspel says there will always be a need for what we call humans, for human intelligence. There will always be a need for person to person to look people in the eye, to give them the courage to go and do what needs to be done. Uh, technology is, is there, and it will always be there too, but you can never eliminate the human. We had a previous uh, head of CIA, Stansville Turner, who didn't trust the, the human element. He thought all spies, people that would betray their country to work with us, they must be bad guys. So we could not trust them. He wanted it all to be satellites. He wanted it all to be technologically oriented. And um, it doesn't it doesn't work. You have to have people. Always. Always will. What is your, your view of uh, what Stansville Turner was saying about someone who's going to betray their country? Uh, what do you think motivates people? You know, you've been all over the world. You've been in in Asia, you've been in Europe, you've been in Cuba. What, what would compel somebody to turn on their country in that way? We've looked, do, do they perceive it as that they're turning on their country? We've looked at that closely, and there's a there's an acronym that we use in in the intelligence community, and it's it's M I C E mice. It's it's the motivators, the primary motivators that cause people to spy, or that they attribute their spying to. It's money. Um, ideology, compromise, and ego. And it's, it's kind of interesting because it's changed right now since, since the end of World War II. The Americans that have, that have spied, that have committed treason, that have spied against the United States government have pretty much done it for money. Not pretty much, almost exclusively. They're, they need money. They want money. That's what drives them. Before the war, they would do the same thing for ideology. They were interested in the Soviet Union. They thought maybe that was a, a recipe for something interesting, and they were supporting the Soviet Union from an ideological point of view. Ideology is the second motivator, and that is most of our Russian assets that work with the United States intelligence community do it for ideology. The very best of the best, we don't even recruit them. They volunteer, like that Pinkovsky, like the first guy I talked about. We didn't go looking for him. He came looking for us. He wanted to work with us. So that's money, ideology, compromise. Compromise is not a very good motivator. Compromise uh, usually results in somebody wanting whatever it is going on to stop. Maybe they're being blackmailed. Uh, it used to be maybe they were homosexual because that, that was a very powerful problem. And then ego is the big the big basket at the end of the whole thing because it's everything from being irate at your office to being ticked off at your boss to being mad at your wife to being considered, you know, you think people don't think you're good enough. A thousand things fall into that last basket. That was Bob Hansen, the FBI guy. He, he, all of his colleagues, all of his colleagues were getting promoted and he was not. So he decided to show them just how good he was at what he did. And he gave away more secrets to the Soviet Union than anybody else. He was a human wrecking ball. When they arrested him, it was his own FBI that arrested him, an FBI officer. When they were putting the cuffs on him, he said, what took you so long? Like, <laughs> like <laughs> you know, you should have found me 10 years ago, but you didn't, <laughs> did you? Anyway. Tell us a little bit about your motivation, a question for the audience. Why did you want to join the CIA, and what did you have to sacrifice in having this profession? Hmm. I kind of wandered in a side door, so I can't say that, you know, I, I left Kansas with this keen, burning desire to be a spy. I did not. Um, I went to Europe and bumped into a bunch of spies who I thought were working for the U.S. military because they were keeping their cover. Anyway, 
my first husband was one of those. I married into the CIA, um, did some pickup jobs, came back to the States. What, what kept me there and what I loved with all my heart and still do is the opportunity to, um, first of all, most important, to help protect those people that were working for us. They were taking enormous risks. And like I said, a lot of them weren't taking the risks for money. They were taking it because they believed in our democracy. They believed in Western government. They, they, they hated their governments. They wanted to help bring them down. I wanted to help keep them safe. So by using all of our technology to keep our officers from leading the KGB to them, we were saving their lives. By teaching them how to communicate with us without divulging where they were communicating from, was saving their lives to teach them how how we would we would do dead drops and put up signals and I mean it was very complicated it was about protecting them and that was the piece of it that I loved but by the way it's also an opportunity to do something that actually really matters and to make a difference and I don't know that many jobs that I would feel that way about I loved knowing that I mean, I was just a wheel in the cog, but, or was I a cog in the wheel? <laughs> Whatever it was, I was part of a large machine, and I, I liked very much being part of that machine and watching the thing go forward. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. It seems to me that uh, CIA, CIA agents are really unsung heroes. In many ways, similar to a uh, military, uh, they risk their lives. They, you know, they, uh, but unlike, uh, unlike someone who's in the armed forces, there's no Veterans Day, there's no Memorial Day for CIA uh, a lot of uh, agents will go to their graves without anyone really knowing the contribution that they made to this country. It's absolutely true. I, um, in airports, I never pass a soldier that I don't just say thank you for your service. And when people tell me thank you for your service, it's the greatest praise I get because all the years I served, nobody knew I was serving. So now to have it at the end is really, it's kind of special to have people tell you thank you. Um, it means a lot. It's odd that Tony and I can speak out and do, because most CIA people cannot and don't. Tony got it came through some little rabbit hole in the fence um, when they named him as a trailblazer, and it was it was actually the the head of the CIA said, "I want you to give an interview to the New York Times." That was our enemy back then. Don't talk to the newspapers. I want Still you to- is the enemy of some <laughs> government officials. But Tony actually said no. And George Tennant said, um, speak to them, Tony. Go do it. And so, and so he did. So we're in a unique position, actually. And we're trying to make, make it count. And that interview had to do um, with uh, Tony's remarkable uh, operation in the, that was made famous in the movie Argo. Yeah. Uh, where, uh, for those who did not see that Oscar-winning movie, where uh, he basically concocted a, a story of a Canadian film crew going into Tehran with, and rescuing six American hostages. I mean, just remarkable. Ben Affleck played Tony. Um, and, and it wasn't until many years, that was many years after, uh, that was yeah. the, the operation was, what, in 1980? I think it was 19 years later yeah. that, that the story came out. Because we had, we had given all of the praise and all of the, Glory to the Canadians. It was supposed to have been a Canadian operation. The Canadian ambassador to Tehran became rich and famous because of that story. And that was the cover story. And we were very pleased about all of that. Then the CIA made Tony take the story back. The Cana- Are there any Canadians in here? <laughs> because the Canadians were not terribly happy about that. They thought they didn't get quite the credit they deserved. We thought they deserved a lot of credit ourselves yeah it was uh it, it was interesting i guess there was some political motivation in terms of public perception that that 
Tim had decided to get the story out at that time that the CIA had been taking some hard knocks at them at that point. It looked like there was a lull. You know, it was before, right before nine eleven. Um, Patrick Moynihan was starting to say, I'm not sure we actually need a CIA because the Cold War seems to be over and everything seems to be cool. Um, and then all hell broke loose. But but it was in that moment that George Tennant decided to uh, like light a cigar and have a moment. And, and we had the public in and they named the 50 top guys in the 51st years of the CIA. And my husband was one to his great surprise, but not to mine. That was just an amazing story. Was that the most incredible story that you've ever heard with the CIA in terms of a clandestine mission? No. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a really good one. It was, I mean, just even even knowing the outcome, watching that movie, it was like heart pounding from start to finish. How many people in here saw that movie? Look at that. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Good for you. There's probably a little self-selection, though, those who would want to come hear about, well, hear about a Well, yeah, maybe. But that is impressive. Uh, here's a three-part question. I love all three of them. We'll take them one at a time. Have you ever been in a position where you were concerned for your life? Yes. Elaborate. Oh. <laughs> That's my follow-up. Oh. Um, once in, um, I always have to be broad, once in South, once in the subcontinent, um, I was I was in a Sheraton hotel. I was there because I was visiting that city temporarily, and while I was there, an honest to god terrorist, a really really bad guy, had called our chief of station, who he knew from some other place, and he said, "I know about an American airplane that's going to be brought down. I know about a hijacking, and I want to give you the intelligence." Well, our chief of station didn't want to meet with this guy because this guy was a really, he was a terrible, terrible man. So the chief of station was scared and he said, there were seven of us there and he said, everybody's coming with me. I'm not going in that hotel by myself. So I disguised everybody. I disguised myself and everybody else and the chief of station. He was really tall, distinctive looking, really blonde American big man. He was like 6'3". And I had to put him in like a shower chemise and sandals and give him a cigar. And and Tony had always said, it's not really, it's not the disguise. It's the way you wear it. You can, you can just get a stick and say, this is my cane. And, you know, I own this place if you can act it. This guy was a great actor. So we went into that hotel, gave him a chance to size up the terrorist before the terrorist sized him up. And anyway, I was in a rug shop. I'm I'm staked out the corner of the hotel. I'm in a rug shop looking through a glass wall, across a corridor, another glass wall, into a newsstand, and I'm counting nuts on these rugs. I'm looking and counting and looking and looking. And I looked up, and in the newsstand is this little bitty man who just looked just, <laughs> God, he looked mean. He was very small, shower kameez, with these two huge men, one on each side, with AK-47s, in a Sheraton, in the newsstand. And I looked up, and I made eye contact with him, and that's like rule number one. Don't look him in the eye. And we just, you know, and I thought, they might shoot me. They really might shoot me because Interpol was after them. The local police were after them. His terrorist organization was after him. He was fleeing for his <laughs> life. And there I was counting knots. And I thought, well, you know, it won't be personal, at least if they shoot me. It won't be personal, but then they didn't shoot me, did they? There were a couple of moments like that when you really thought, this could go, this could go either way. I was always flashing forward to the headline in my mind. You know, American Western woman counting knots in a rug store. (laughs) Did you carry uh, firearms yourself? No. But I was trained. And all of them. Okay, we get to part two, which I love this part two. How hard was it to keep privacy and cover from close family and friends? And the questioner asks parent or puts in parenthetically, my mom would blow my cover. My dad almost blew mine. And he's the only person I told that I wished I had not told because it was a burden for him and for me. He, he just, you know, wanted to tell his friends, his buddies, the guys he went, he was retired. He'd go to coffee at 
McDonald's or something with his friends and he wanted to tell them. And I couldn't take it back. I, it worried me. But then I thought, if he only tells his friends at McDonald's, everyone's still safe. No one's going to get shot. No one, nothing bad's going to happen in the world because my dad and his friends at McDonald's know this. Um, I had a really, really good friend, my best friend. She was uh, not American. She was a banker. She was assigned all over the world. Um, and I never could tell her, and I never did tell her. What she thought was that I had the most boring job ever, something with the United States Army. She wasn't sure, but I would be overseas and I would be back. She had this 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 high wire act of a job dealing in foreign exchange. She'd make a mistake and it would cost her bank $5 million that morning. And she'd call me and say, oh God, you won't believe what I did. So we talked about her job. <laughs> she found out I worked for CIA because we had an art show. She came down from New York to surprise me at the art show. 60 Minutes was at the art show with their cameras. And I'd called everyone that was agency, and I said, if you're going to come, don't just, just know that the media will be here. Most of them did not show up. But I'd never thought to call my best friend. And so she popped in. She got really mad at me. She's probably still a little ticked off. <laughs> well, what would you say if somebody was drilling down about your job? You'd say, oh, it's something with the Army. Uh Oh, I could go on and on. I mean, I could bore, I could, I, I could, your eyes would glaze over. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then I won't ask any more on that. Well, the, the part three of the question suggests, John Mendez, that you're doing a pretty good job of making this sound interesting because part three is, is 48 years old, too old to join? <laughs> 34 is, is uh, for operations, 34 is the cutoff. I can't speak to other pieces of it. If you have a skill that they need um, and you're not looking to be operational overseas, you could probably knock on their door, uh, take your your skills forward and see, you know, what happens. Different questioner, but someone who obviously may also be interested in a career. There'll be a short line outside the door <laughs> afterwards. I'll take, I'll take names. Uh, yeah. Are there different needs and requirements or tasks for women versus men in terms of uh, becoming an agent? Well, there were when I was there. But I think the women that followed me have straightened that out. Of the top five jobs at CIA right now, four of them are occupied by senior women. The women have always done well, though, on the seventh floor, on on the executive level. Women have have proven themselves years ago. It's, It's feet on the ground. It's working with agents. It's that operational piece of it that the the guys were slow to let the uh, to let the women in. They always thought we were working at a disadvantage. I always thought we were working at an advantage because uh, spell, you know if you're working say with Middle Eastern men, there's this whole face saving thing that goes on. They ha- always have to save face if they're being trained or by by another by by another um, uh, Westerner, the, say they're same age and and they don't understand or they get it or they make a mistake or they get it wrong they lose face, and that's very uncomfortable. But I found that if it's a woman doing the training, I can just say, oh, well, you know, let's do it again. It's not a big deal. They don't lose face with women. And that was like one of the first wedges that I found that, you know, we can do this as well and sometimes better than the men. I think today women do very well at the CIA across the board. It's... it's um, I always found that if you if you if you could show them that they you could do it, they would let you do it, and that's that was one way that a lot of women got out of the typing pool and into much more interesting jobs. Another audience question: How much more fascinating is the information that you aren't allowed to share? In other words, how difficult was it? And we talked about this backstage. Uh, what kind of vetting did you go through with the CIA, and how much did they red pencil out? We've written, uh, we've written four books, and they all go through really a, a rigorous review, sometimes multiple reviews. We got one all the way through, and it was lying on the DCI's desk, the head of CIA. One of the attorneys, the corporate attorneys there, came and picked it up and said, you can't publish this. And they had to go back down into the review process. Um, for me, when it's all over, it's like I have guardrails. I know, I know what I can talk about. And I know what's kind of out there that I can't talk about. So it makes it easier for me to appear publicly. People are 
I think I think people sit in the audience and worry that I'm going to say something that I shouldn't. I worry that the CIA is going to come after me someday, but I haven't I haven't had that happen yet. So we we don't want to reveal anything that shouldn't be revealed in in, in their eyes. I'm so far off from the question that I've forgotten the question. <laughs> Let me ask you. There were earlier question about the public perception of the CIA, and it's been a bit cyclical. Certainly in the '70s with the Senator Frank Church, there was a lot of uh, crackdown on the CIA and some of its excesses. Um, then, then we had 9-11, and, and certainly the value of intelligence became very uh, paramount. Um, more recently, we have a president of the United States who's basically, in some ways, disparaged his own intelligence agencies. There he was standing next to Vladimir Putin, and when Putin said, we did not meddle in the election basically saying that he trusted Putin over his own uh, own intelligence community. And in other ways, he's he's uh, been critical of the intelligence community. I'm interested in not only your perspective, but I'm sure you're in touch with a lot of folks who are still in the uh, agency and what they think. Well, you know, you go back to the church committee, and, and that was an interesting time with the microbio-inoculator. These, Frank Church was holding up these weapons. I think they did discover that a little bit of oversight wouldn't hurt wouldn't hurt the CIA. I think at the end of the day the CIA complied with all of that and felt felt like it wasn't a bad thing. It was they were working in partnership with these oversight committees. That went down okay. Um, it's hard to comment on what's going on today. I don't like to get political when I'm when I'm talking about my book even writing about the book we we wanted we wanted to stay away from that but you you can't stay totally away from it because it's it's in the air that you breathe right now I I think uh, it's not just what the president is doing publicly it's what he's doing privately um, there's a the, the presidential da- daily brief which is a, it's like a newspaper that that's made it's got really one one reader it's the president of the United States. It's the distillation every day of from, from 16 intelligence agencies into one smallish paper. This, sir, is what's going on in the world. And the fact that he doesn't read it is an issue. Because these people that I was talking about that are working for us, that are taking chances, that were... were we're breaking our backs to protect them, to keep them from being arrested and executed. This is what they're taking those chances for, to get the intelligence to Washington, to our policymakers, so they can make informed decisions. That's the whole point. And when they refuse to accept the intelligence, that's got to be kind of mind-numbing inside of the agency. I've always said that it didn't matter who was president, I've always said that the agency was a pretty apolitical organization. I never knew the people I worked with if they were Republicans or Democrats. I mean, I really didn't know. Actually, I really didn't care because we were so busy doing what we were doing. We weren't sitting around talking about politics. If we were sitting around with beers, we were talking about work. That's that's kind of how it was. I, I I never cared who was in the White House because at a working level, it didn't matter. The work went on. It was the same. I'm not sure that that's absolutely true today with this this kicking around. Kicking around, we can take. Like the FBI, they can take some kicking around. FBI might kick back. I mean, <laughs> they're tough guys. A little rivalry between those two institutions as yeah. well, is there not? Yeah. But but um, th- this thing about the, the information not being uh, used is disheartening, and that probably does filter down into the working level. You know, the people that work there, most people at CIA work there for their entire careers. You don't pop in and pop out. You don't do a three-year gig and move on to something else. You get into that, and, and they people stay, and that's still true. Um, it sounds sounds ridiculous. It's almost a calling because you think it's important. You think that the work that you're doing matters. You think that you might make a difference and you want to keep doing it. There was this incredible statistic about our retirees. This is back at the time when I retired. 
most of our people were, it was, it was a men's organization that I worked in. There weren't that many women. Our men, their average lifespan after they retired was 18 months. So Tony used to say it was like that going to work was like um, drinking from a fire hose and retiring was like jumping off a moving train because those people I'm talking about, those men, they didn't really have active outside lives. They didn't have hobbies. They didn't go on huge vacations. Their work was their passion. And when they left and that door shuts behind you, you are cut off from all your friends because they are all your friends. Everybody marries everybody in the CIA it's because you can kind of talk a little bit. Everybody understands what's going on. And you leave that whole community and you're, you're kind of cast out and our guys would die. They'd have heart attacks. So they had to redo the retirement process to kind of ameliorate that. I, get, I guess the good thing when the president is uh, talking down um, the CIA and the so-called deep state, at least if you're a spy, your friends and relatives don't necessarily know what you're doing. <laughs> Whereas if you're a journalist and he talks about fake news <laughs> and you're enemy of the people everywhere you go. Good point. <laughs> good point. Um, let me ask you, I understand another of your specialties, uh, obviously you're a fine arts photographer, but you're also an expert in clandestine photography. Tell us about it. You know, tell us, uh, I love talking about spycraft. Uh, do you have a camera on you? No, but, but if, you know, I usually, when I do these talks, I usually have one. Uh, one of, one of my props is my lipstick because I, 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 I can open it up and I can get the lipstick up and I can show you that, you know, it still works and, but there's a camera in it or I can pull out my fountain pen and I can sign a book and then I can flip it over and take a picture of the page. Um, I worked with these little bitty cameras, some miniature cameras, they were proprietary to CIA. Uh, one man made them. They were they were about that big. It was a camera. It was a film camera. So inside of that was a cartridge, a film cartridge, and inside of that was a piece of film about that long. And it was just when you see old film uh, from thirty five millimeter camera work, it's hard. The hardness is a backing. The emulsion is like saran wrap, and you can strip that emulsion off, mm-hmm. and it is like saran wrap. That's what that little thing film saran wrap. You could, you couldn't even feel it in the dark room, uh, and there would be fifty black dots on it when you developed it, and each one was a page of text like you have in your lap. Wow! And those cameras collected more significant intelligence during the Cold War than than any other tool that we had. They were better than, well, I, I can't say that because someone took me to task for saying that. We had all those satellites up in the air and they were working like gangbusters. They're going over Russia and Cuba and they're photographing everything on the ground. The, we could see in Cuba, we could see where the missiles were, how many missiles. We could see, you know, w- where they're preparing to add more. But that little camera was taking pictures of the agendas of the meetings, of the planning sessions for the meetings. That little camera was collecting plans and intentions, what they were going to do, what was coming, what they're thinking about. So I think if we still had those little cameras in North Korea today, if we had one inside of that machine that is his government, taking pictures of his his minutes, his agendas, his, wouldn't that be fun? Or if you had another one in the Politburo, you know, where, where Vladimir Putin is making his plans for our next election cycle, it'd be interesting to see what <laughs> comes out of that. Those cameras, because of the, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Pictures from those little cameras were just, they were absolutely golden. It was, it was just really significant. And by the way, they were all, they were handmade. By one man in his garage. And we thought to ourselves, you can't just have one source. You have to have another another source. So we went looking first in America and then in the world. We went to all the major optical companies in America. And we took, we took the schematics for our little camera. We gave them everything they would need. It's an eight element. That means there are eight pieces of glasses stacked on top of each other in the, in the, in the lens. And we said, we're looking for someone who can make these for us so we can have a backup. And not one, we never found anyone else that could make them. 
just the guy in the garage. Just him. Wow. And did he approach you or did... I mean, how do you find, our, people? Our, our how do you find people who do this Our this engineers, stuff? Our engineers found that guy and, um, and hired him. And, and together, our engineer helped design it, and that, that man was able to assemble them. I was on the other side of the world um, at one time, and I was issuing those cameras. And we were running low because we didn't have that many of them. And then, then they said I was going to have to wait like a month to get any more. And I thought, where are they? And then I saw on um, on the local TV, this is in a foreign country, I saw on the local TV a film clip from Cuba. And they had just arrested like 20 double agents down in Cuba. And they were, they had, in the film, they, they had a, a video camera and they're going to their equipment shop and they're going up and down the shelves showing what they found, this American equipment that these double agents had. And there were my cameras. <laughs> and I could make out the body numbers on them. And I thought, okay, now I know where they are. The Cubans got them. And by the way, uh, John is also a member of the board of the Spy Museum yeah. in Washington, which I highly recommend. I haven't seen the the new facility, but it's you'll you'll never walk into another person's home again and not <laughs> wonder that everything's looking at you and recording you. This new museum, it is phenomenal. I mean, I don't have to be associated with it to say that it is. It goes into some, some areas we've never touched on, like an analysis. It shows the Abbottabad, the whole, the whole red team incident of how the president received these streams of information, and you receive them on a, on, a, on a computer in front of you. You receive the information he received, and you try to put it together. And then the question is, would you have gone into Abbottabad? Would you have sent those helicopters in? Would you have sent that team in the way Obama did? Obama, at the end of that exercise, which is fact-driven, Obama said he figured the odds were 50-50. That's what he made his decision on. Yeah. That's, that's seated. I mean, that's guts. No kidding. Well, let's talk a little more spycraft. Uh, you, and, and there's some terms that maybe you can expand on. You mentioned dead drops. How does that work? Dead drops are one, reason, one, one, one method of doing impersonal communications with your Russian agent. You can't meet him in person because surveillance is going to be all around you. So you can pre-establish a site where you can leave something for him, and then he can come maybe the next day, maybe the next hour, and pick it up. There are all these signals that go with it. But the whole thing was that the package that you put down, it has to be something that nobody else will pick up. It has to be innocuous. It might want to be disgusting. There are a lot of ways to keep people from picking up your dead drop. Uh, we used crushed cans covered with motor oil, and the thing would be protected inside. We, we used fake bricks in construction sites, which is tricky because it's really, really, really looked like a brick. It might get mortared <laughs> into the, the you, could, you could lose a couple that way. We used dead rats. Dead rats was um, one of our favorites with little tef- Teflon closures, and um, they, they weren't nasty they were cleaned up but to make sure that an animal wouldn't pick up our dead rat we would we would dip them in tabasco <laughs> and dry them on clotheslines and then you know we'd have them on the shelf so we could turn them around really i think our 48 year old recruit is about to keep his or her day job <laughs> yeah so dead drops were a thing okay another one the jack in the box in the car oh that was a that was a great one. That's Tony Mendez. That's right. Uh, sitting in some bar somewhere in the subcontinent, uh, drinking Kingfisher beer and eating samosas. Big clue. Uh, and he had been there doing some work, and he decided that day that we needed uh, a diversion in Moscow. We needed a way to make surveillance think there were still two people in the car when there really was just one person in the car. So we needed a dummy, a pop-up dummy. And, and that was the beginning of a thing called the jack-in-the-box, or jib. We called it a jib. Um, it started out back home. He took two of our engineers, and he sent them to Al's Magic Shop down by the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue to buy some party dolls. This is my introduction to party dolls. I'd never heard the term. <laughs> So they bought some inflatable plastic dolls, brought them back, and they were working with them, experimenting. 
And then they had to go get more. This turned into a problem because the engineers didn't want to go back to the magic shop over and over for more party dolls. (laughs) They were young. Um, It started out, they were inflatable. And we had gas canisters and we put them in um, briefcases. We only need the top half, so we would duct tape the top half. And and then you'd, you'd, you'd hit a button and the briefcase would pop up and the dummy would pop up and the gas canisters would would start going. Well, what happens is the gas, when it comes out really, really fast, it's really, really cold, really cold. So we, we sent one of these things. We thought we had it fairly refined. We sent it behind the iron curtain to one of the case officers and his wife. They're practicing with it. The wife is driving down the street. The man bails out of the car. She hits the button. The dummy pops up. The gas starts going and the, the whole thing just blew up. <laughs> In the car, Um, we ended up with a very elegant, very sophisticated, beautiful piece of equipment that could replicate you if you were, I'm driving and you're in the passenger seat. There's some choreography with the car, but we do two right turns. You bail out. I hit the button. The thing pops up. It's wearing your blue coat. It's wearing the same tie. It's actually wearing your face because now we make these brilliant masks. It's got a wig on just like you and the head swivels. So you can, you can turn your head and talk to me. And the people behind us, they see that too, you know, if they came up beside you at a stoplight, which they normally wouldn't do, there's no question that it's you, it's you in the car. This was a, this was a wonderful piece of equipment. We got it so refined that in the book, one of the stories has two men getting in the front of the car, the chief of station, the case officer, and the two wives in the back. And one of the wives has a birthday cake on her lap because they're going to a birthday party. They've been chattering on the phone about this all day because they know that the Soviets are listening. So when the men jumped out, the wife leans forward, puts the birthday cake on the seat, pushes the button, the thing comes up out of a birthday cake, which I thought was the best I'd ever, I'd ever heard of. <laughs> um, and that was part of a huge, wonderful operation that Jim allowed that operation to take place. And that also has commercial viability here in the Bay Area and carpool lanes. I I, I tell you, I think when those engineers were working with those party dolls, I think that may be where a couple of the party dolls went. (laughs) Great. Um, Another spy technique, brush contacts. How how does that work? That's a little bit of the magic thing going on. Uh, Brush contact is... Two people pass each other, and you have to kind of work on this. Um, you can just hand something off to someone, and you can do it so easily that that people in the vicinity would never know. We tried it out. We, we Proof of concept was at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C. We had some observers, two of our officers. One of them was standing inside the door. The other one walked in. He had a raincoat over his arm. He He... He changed the raincoat from one arm to the other, and while he did that, it was just sleight of hand, he handed a small package to the man that was standing inside the door who held the door for him, and then he walked out. It was just a, that's a brush pass. And it's very easy to do, actually, and it's very hard to see. It's another form of impersonal communication. Well, unfortunately, we reached the point where we have time for one more question, and we'll take it from the audience, and that is about the book Moscow Rules, which not only celebrates the CIA's successes, but highlights some huge failures. And how did or do CIA agents deal with these failures? You know, when we lose an agent, um, it's personal. And it's not, it's never supposed to get personal. It's kind of like you and your doctor. I mean, you might like your doctor a lot. Your doctor might be great, but they're trained. Don't don't let it get personal because it can bump into your judgment. It can... It can um, interrupt what should be more like a business uh, arrangement. We, when we would lose people, we would go back and agonize over, was it something we did? Could we have caused it? Is it something we should fix? Is it something we can fix? What happened? The agents that we lost, the um, number of them we lost because of American uh, officers intelligence officers who betrayed those agents for money. Aldrich James, you guys probably all heard of Aldrich James, Rick Ames. 
he sold about 12 Soviets pounds of flesh for money. And uh, he knew when he gave their names up that they would be killed. I mean, he knew that. He knew they'd shoot them. Some of them were friends of his. Some of them he had recruited. He, when they started killing them, he got really concerned. It all, this all happened sort of in 1985 time frame. He went up, out to the Russians and he said, he sent them a message that we intercepted later. It said, don't kill them so fast. It's going to lead back to me. They're going to figure out that it was, don't do it so slow down. Just heartless. Um, and so that became a new Moscow rule. It's the very last rule in the book. And the rule is that betrayal can come from within. That's now a rule. We never, the CIA refused to believe that one of our own could do something like that. It was just a big awakening when we found out. Rick Ames, uh, Edward Lee Howard, and Bob Hansen, those three people gave away people, operations, not just American people in operations, worldwide, huge operations, uh, operations with, with allies, with other intelligence companies. It just, it was just, it was devastation what they did. And it was hard to come back from. You have to rebuild from the ground up. Well, on that note, uh, please join me in thanking John Mendez, author of the Moscow uh, World. Thank you. I also, you were terrific. And you, you recruited a couple of spies, potentially. They might have some new spies. Or maybe more. also want to remind those in the audience that uh, John will be signing copies of the book, which are for sale here in a few minutes outside. And with that, I'm John Diaz, and this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. Love it. Thank you. You are fascinating.